grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, the Alpha, the Omega, Jesus Christ, my brothers, my sisters. If you give a mouse a cookie, he'll ask you for some milk. If you give him some milk, he'll ask you for a... Sorry, what? A straw, that's right. and That's the one I always forget. If you give him a straw, he'll ask you for a napkin. If you give him a napkin, he'll ask you for a mirror to see if he has a milk mustache. So the children's book goes. Thank you for helping me out. But I want to point something out about that children's book. None of those if-then statements are logical. How do you know that if you give a mouse a cookie, he's going to ask you for some milk? There's nothing logical about that. You might say, well, pastor, if you have a, have a cookie, the best thing you can have with it is a glass of milk. How do you know that? There's nothing about a cookie that needs milk with it, but you know that cookies and milk go well together by experience. You know that's a good combo because you've had it yourself. And so the author of this children's book is speaking not from logic, not from a place of reason, not from a place of facts, but from a place of experience. It seems to be, according to this author, she is familiar with mice and their behavior, and she has given them cookies and always sees that they want milk and a straw and a napkin and a mirror afterwards. Up until this point in the book of Romans, Paul has been making some very clear points about where we stand with God and, and with each other, about the fact that none of us can be saved by our obedience to God, by our actions, by our behavior before God, because none of us are good enough to be able to do that. He's made his point perfectly clear so far in Romans. Up to this part in Romans, he has explained that we are saved by grace through faith alone, and that's it. But Paul knows the question that is on our minds. But it's not a logical question. It's a question that Paul knows because he's heard it before. He has experienced this question before. And the way that Paul expresses this question might seem a little distant, but as we dig into it, we realize this is the question that we struggle with every day of our lives. Even non-Christians struggle with this central question throughout their entire lives. And so we better get things straight, wouldn't you say? The way Paul phrases this question is he says, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? If it's true that God saves us by unconditional love, by grace alone, and if it's true that when God does that for such a miserable sinner such as I, that God displays his wonderful, amazing glory. Wow, what a glorious love God shows that he's able to save a dirty, rotten sinner like me then doesn't it follow that the more I sin, the more glory God can get for himself because he can show how gracious he is. Shall we go on sinning so that grace might increase so God could continue to show his glorious love? That's just another way to say the question you have heard, I have heard, we have asked, is God's grace permission to sin? What is our relationship with sin and grace? And this is a question that comes from experience. 
Because if there's anything I know by experience about me, it's that I'm a sinner. If there's anything you know about the human race, it's that we do what's wrong, and we keep doing it. And therefore, it is a reasonable conclusion that in the future we're going to keep sinning. So how do we understand the fact that God loves us unconditionally against the fact that we know we're sinners? Well, someone who is addicted to drinking alcohol in excess, to prescription painkillers, to pornography, to social media, to apps on your phone, someone who is addicted, by definition, an addiction has to be you know it's bad, you know the damage it does, but you do it anyway. You are under compulsion, even against your own will in extreme cases. So maybe you've struggled with an outright addiction yourself and you've experienced that pull, I don't want to do this, but I keep doing it, I keep falling into it. But all of us, all of us are addicted to doing wrong. All of us keep hurting people, whether we want to or not. All of us keep doing things and saying things that we later regret and are ashamed of. All of us keep falling short of the glory of God. We know what Paul said earlier in Romans, that we are sinners. We know that by experience. So then how do we reconcile the fact that we keep sinning, we are sin addicts, to the fact that God loves us unconditionally? Well, there are at least two common ways to understand it, and both are wrong. Maybe... I'm the only one that cares about my sin. I do bad stuff, and then later on I feel bad about it. But I should just realize that God doesn't really care anymore. Jesus has come, he has died on the cross, and therefore God says, no, you're good, go ahead, whatever. And so I don't have to be that concerned, and I can console myself with the fact that God doesn't really look at me for my sin, so I don't have to care about it either. Is that going to work? No. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, has explained that sin incurs the wrath of God. God is angry about sin. God is not happy. It's not that he doesn't care. He's not invested. It's not that he's not invested in our lives. So maybe we go the other way. And we say, yes, God takes sin very seriously. He takes it so seriously that he wants you to get rid of it. He loved you enough to send you Jesus to be your Savior, but that was to kind of get you started. And it's up to you to take that and carry it forward. God wants you. God is investing in you so that you can grow, so that you can do better, so that you can try again, try harder. And so as long as you are improving, then God is happy with you. But if you don't, then he might kick you to the curb. Well, that's not true either. Because if that were true, then God's love for you is hardly unconditional. It's hardly grace anymore if God gives it to you with the contingent that you keep it going that you demonstrate you're worthy of his grace. So we need help here. We need to help to understand the pickle that we're in. What is our relationship to sin? Is it a part of us? Is it who we are? Is it our identity? Or is it just a bad habit? Is it one of God's pet peeves? Oh, I wish he would just get over that sin. What are we to make of it? Well, Paul steers adeptly between those two ditches, either making sin into no big deal or making God into a legalistic judge only by pointing us to our baptism. Paul says, 
What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Don't you love that? The central question at the heart of so many people, the main issue so many people have with this idea that we're saved by grace through faith is, does God's unconditional love give us permission to sin? Paul just says, no, it doesn't. Absolutely not. But he explains the reason why it doesn't is because of your baptism. Now, you've probably seen a couple baptisms here at Trinity. It's always a, a really good time. It's always very important. It's a ceremony, right? Outside the church, we have different kinds of ceremonies. I would put it into two categories. We have ceremonies outside the church, ceremonies of recognition and ceremonies of initiation. Your graduation is a ceremony of recognition for what you have done, graduating from high school, from college, or from training. You have completed the training. You are now qualified. A frat house has an initiation week so that they can weed out who they want in the, in, in the fraternity through these weird traditions and rituals, sometimes very illegal traditions and rituals to weed them out. Your company that you got started at had an orientation week to get you up to snuff. We have ceremonies. We have practices, traditions of initiation and recognition. So which one is baptism? Is it the point at which you stood before God and said, yes, I'm on board with this Christianity thing. Take me into your, under your wing, God. I can do it. I can live up to my baptism. Or was it your initiation where you got dunked and then it was, okay, now you have to live according to your baptism? Well, neither really fit. Paul explains that your baptism was not some symbolic ceremony, not some weird cultic ritual. It wasn't just a tradition. When you were baptized, things happened to you. It wasn't just an initiation. It was a termination. Something ended. A life ended at your baptism. You were killed. This is how that works. At your baptism, when droplets of water surrounded your head, your life, your being, yourself was surrounded by Christ. That's what it means to be baptized into Christ. And Jesus, as we heard in Mark chapter 1, Jesus who had become, who is God, who has become flesh, was baptized and went on from there to do his public ministry, to preach and to teach and to cast out demons and to heal people of their diseases. And then he went on to suffer. He went on to be crucified. He went on to be buried, fully dead, 100% dead, and then to come back from the dead, something no one else had ever done. Then what happened at your baptism? All of that was applied to you as if you did it. The obedience to God's will, God's law, the declaration from heaven, this is my child whom I love, with them I am well pleased. The suffering, the death, and the resurrection have all happened to you 
because of your baptism. You see, Jesus is the reason why grace is not permission to sin. Because we see through Jesus what sin actually is. Sin is death. Sin is slavery. Paul pictures sin like a person. Sin is a person that wants to kill you, that has its hands around your neck. And the only way to stop this villain from destroying you and who you are and everyone you love is for someone to kill it. And so Jesus comes in and he takes sin off of you. He takes sin and drags it to his cross and he crucifies it, killing it, along with your guilt, along with anything bad you have ever done, along with all that wrongdoing, along with all that cycle, that addiction to sin, that has been crucified with Christ. As nails went through Jesus' own body, it was going through your sin. It was going through your old self. That has died. And what has risen from the dead is who you are now. There is nothing that needs to change about you. Oh, I know that's so controversial to say, right? <laughs> a lot of people are making a lot of money by giving you the, the message that there's a lot that needs to change about you, a lot of behavior change, especially right now as the new year has started. But you might say, how can you say that, Pastor? When I struggle with temptation so much, when I see the addiction to sin, and it feels like it's definitely still there, because there are sins that come knocking at my door time and again, and I'm losing more battles than I'm winning, Pastor. And I know, because I'm in those shoes too. But here's, what, here's the reality. Your sin has been crucified. You are dead to sin. Dead people don't need to answer to anybody. Dead people don't need to show up for work the next day. Dead people don't need to write back when they get a letter in the mail. And if someone is a slave when they die, guess what? They stop being a slave. So you are no longer a slave to sin. There is no more have to with sin. Before Jesus, before Christ, before your baptism, that was all that there is. You were doing sins bidding left and right, and so was I. But we're dead to sin now. The lie of temptation is that you have to do it. The lie of temptation is that when you're out at the bar with your buddies and you know you've already had too much and you want to have another one, it's a lie to think that you have to drink more. It's a lie to think that just because you're alone with your computer, you can open up those pornographic sites. You do not have to. There is no have to with sin anymore. It's a lie to say that you have to blow up at people when they offend you, or you have to gossip about people when they do something crazy, or you have to do any of this. There's no more have to. That's not who you are anymore. And so temptation is sin itself coming, crawling back, lying to you again, trying to pretend like you're still under its control, but you're not. You are dead to sin. You are alive in Christ. That's what Paul explains that. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by death might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. 
Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, I hope you see that just because you know from experience that people are sinners, just because you know from experience that you are tempted and that you and I sin, that doesn't mean that's who we are. Sin is not is behaving in a way that does not fit the facts. You're dead to sin, and you have already undergone your own resurrection. You are sitting here as a newly minted child of God with whom God himself is well pleased. Those are the facts. So it's as simple as you remembering the facts and living in accordance with them. That's going to change the way we talk to ourselves, isn't it? When you're tempted to sin, when you're tempted by those familiar habits of old, you will say to yourself, no, that's not who I am. I'm dead to that. I don't have to go down that road. I'm alive in Christ. Those are the facts. When someone else, a brother or a sister in the faith, is caught up in a sin, you're not going to say to them, come on, get your stuff together, because otherwise you're going to lose, lose God. God is going to be so angry with you that he's going to cut off his grace. No, instead you say, your behavior doesn't make any sense, because you're not being who you are in Christ. And you call them back by telling them who they are. That when you're sitting with your friend who's feeling guilty about something that they've done, maybe they've, they're suffering an addiction and they've fallen in again, you don't say things like, oh, you're just human. We all make mistakes. That's okay. Nor do you give them empty promises, empty encouragements, like, come on, get back on the horse, try again. Instead, you remind them who they are. You are a redeemed, forgiven child of God washed completely clean of all of your sins. That's who you are, and it's just a matter of you living who you are. Because I want, you, I want us to notice something about the way Paul speaks in this lesson. Follow the pronouns in Romans 6. He says we a lot, right? We are a community of people who have together been baptized into Christ. We are all on this journey together, this walk with Christ and with each other. Do you think that this is the first time the Romans heard about who they are in Christ and who they are because of their baptism? No. But Paul is happy to remind them of the facts. And isn't that what we do as a church family? We gather every Sunday and for Bible classes and for when you're hanging out with each other. Why? To remind each other of the facts. Because we need it. Paul says, we are this way. We are struggling. We are new. We have been crucified. We have been resurrected. And he points us to him, to what Christ has accomplished for us. Because that's what was applied to you at your baptism. So think of yourself that way. Talk to yourself that way. Talk to each other that way, that we are people who are dead and yet alive in Christ. Amen.